As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Before we get into the U.S. Men's National Team-centric episode, I wanted to add a little bit of an audio disclaimer up front. I had some technical difficulties on my end while recording this show. Everything is still totally audible and Adam Snavely's sound is crisp and beautiful. But I wanted to take a second and apologize for the lack of sharp sound on my end during the show. Now, without any further ado, let's get this thing rolling. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Joe Lowry, and today I'm joined by a man who watched a slew of goals hit the back of the net earlier tonight. It's Adam Snavely. Adam, how are you? Joe, I am doing quite well. I don't think I'm doing quite as well as anybody that was playing for the United States men's national team against El Salvador tonight, because (laughs) that was just a... An impressive display of dominance, shall we say? Uh, but I am doing pretty darn well, I have to say, as a as a as a casual observer and fan. Well, I'm glad you're doing well, and I think your observation is is a very accurate one. That the United States men's national team is probably doing just fine, bordering on great after a six nothing win over El Salvador in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The U.S. scored a lot of goals, six of them. I know I said it already, but it bears repeating. The U.S. scored many, many, many goals in this game. They had three starters making their debuts. It was Io Akinola, Chris Mueller, Julian Araujo, and then they had two more players making their debuts off the bench. Also had the return of Paul Areola in this game, and he grabs the opening goal. And we got a full 90 minutes and a goal from Salzburg-bound Brendan Aronson. A lot of stuff happened in this game, Adam. How do we even begin to start peeling the onion and get to, get to the stuff that really matters here? Well, first of all, what, what no mention of, of Bill Hamid's 90 minutes clean sheet? <laughs> Two saves, I think it was. I think he had two saves, maybe one save. One save and he touched the ball like one other time. You're so right. That was a huge, huge, massive oversight on my part. <laughs> Thank you for correcting me in my ways. Adam, I need someone to do that and I appreciate you stepping into that role. Oh, I try. I do think I do think when we look at this game and talk about what happened and how we're trying to evaluate what all of this means, because it's kind of hard in a sense, to evaluate what all this means. First of all, it's a weird date. It's a December camp, which usually there is no December camp. Um, it was just a, an utter route, which usually also doesn't happen. El Salvador played what what looked like possibly the worst team game I've seen a team play against the United States men's national team in uh, over a year, probably. I would, I would say definitely bad. over a year. They, they were... They were truly scrambling for for any any type of of hold in this game, and and that type of thing just hasn't happened in a while. Uh, when I'm watching a U.S. men's national team game, so I think that it's important to lay out the context and kind of what we're talking about when we're talking about this game, the players and performances that occurred in this game, and how they affect the national team pool moving forward. Yeah, let's start with some of that context, maybe getting at the roster that came into this camp first. So 
unlike the November roster, that the, the camp in November was held in Europe. The U.S. played two friendlies over there, one against Wales, one against Panama. And it was a heavily European roster with just a couple of guys coming in from non-European countries. It was almost the exact opposite of that in this December camp. Greg Berhalter added the camp in late, and then he gets in a bunch of domestic-based players. The only guy that wasn't coming from the United States in this camp was Sebastian Soto, who was a late add into this group of players. It was even missing some domestic guys that we typically expect to see, like Jossie Zardes, Jordan Morris. Both of those players are going to be playing an MLS Cup on Saturday. So this roster, to start us off, is very, very different. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. That, that's not a bad thing because we get to see some guys that we don't usually see start. We get to see all sorts of different looks, not necessarily tactically, although we'll talk more about that later on. We got to see a lot of guys who don't typically play a ton of minutes get minutes. And that's good because the summer of 2021 is going to be insanely hectic for the United States men's national team from a, from a fixture standpoint. You kind of have this vibe of the entire camp, uh, both both the training and the game itself, that this was almost the January camp before the January camp. Uh, traditionally, the, the January camp, somewhat derogatorily nicknamed Camp Cupcake, um, is the, the time when you see the MLS guys get a run out. And a lot of MLS guys that are maybe not necessarily the MLS guys that get called up to the national team a lot of times. So you see a lot of talent identification and people popping up and traditionally it's kind of in that spot where especially in world cup qualification and world cup years you'll get one or two guys that make waves in the january camp that end up on that final team as integral parts um the last time the united states men's national team made uh the the world cup that guy was deandre yedlin who really kind of cemented his place that spring and all of a sudden for jurgen klinsmann became a, a really, really important player. So the December camp has almost become the January camp for the January camp itself, <laughs> where you see a lot of guys that are not necessarily the people that you would expect to get a ton of minutes, even in a January camp per se. And they're coming in there. Some of them are starting even and getting a lot of minutes and kind of showing things. And it feels like, okay, this is the, these are the people that are, trying to make a name for themselves going into this this spring and and even fall this 2021 2022 whole cycle of CONCACAF Nations League World Cup qualifying Gold Cup where the schedule is just congested it is so there are so many dates there are so many fixtures and you know that the United States is going to need a pretty deep squad to run through all of these competitions especially if they want to correct what is seen by large portions of the United States fandom. And I think rightly so as a a defining failure of the United States men's national team in not qualifying for the 2018 world cup. So you have the December camp, which is this, this weird identification for the identification camp almost. And, and I want to add here, I think you and I have done a, a solid job so far props to us on adding context into this game. And for the things that we're going to talk about, but I want to add in a little bit of optimism here because we've been very measured so far. This, this team, the, not only the roster that Greg Berhalter brought in, but the starting group that he played in this game against El Salvador, there's real legitimate talent. There were guys who have been coming up in Major League Soccer that we've been wanting to get a look at for the men's national team or, or another look at for the men's national team. Mark McKenzie in the back at center back, who's had European rumors swirling around him for almost an entire year now, maybe, maybe half a year at the very least. Brendan Aronson, I already mentioned him in midfield. He's going to go to RB Salzburg very, very soon. I think the new year is when he's going. Then you've got Ayo Akinola, who's a, a dual national number nine, who's choosing between Canada and the U.S. And I believe on the broadcast, they said Nigeria as well. There's lots of players that we got to look at today who might not even be, as you said, Adam, might not even be regulars in the January camp. Although I'm not sure the line there is as, as distinct as it might have been a couple of years ago. All that to say, there's talent in this group, and we got to see some really, really good players, even if this game was sort of put together and this camp was sort of put together to give Greg Berhalter a chance to simply evaluate as many players in the player pool as possible. Yeah, and, and I, I, I wish to sound measured because I think that 
anytime you see a game like this, you have to be a little bit measured, especially when you're facing off against a country that's significantly smaller than you, that historically has not been successful as successful as you, especially in recent history when it comes to the United States and El Salvador. Obviously, in the 70s and 80s, El Salvador was having more success internationally than the United States because it was hard to not have more international success in that time period than the United States men's national team. <laughs> um, so, so shouts out. I, I, I know the history. Uh, I, I know about Mexico. Like El Salvador had some players. I know, I know. But yeah, like you said, there are some really good players and I don't want to suck the joy out of a six, nothing victory because at the end of the day, you're playing the people that are put before you. And if that team that is put before you is, is playing an inferior game to you, then it is a good thing ultimately that you take the game to them and you establish. I, I mean, I, it's hard to say it any other way. You establish dominance of the way that the United States men's national team did this, this, this game. There's, players that are playing for the eyeballs of the coaches uh, and for their spots in upcoming camps. And so I'm glad that we saw so many people that look so hungry for goals to get a victory in this game for the United States. I mean, I, I think that even though we are taking the measured approach of saying, yes, there are all these caveats to the victory, it is still worth it to be excited about what we saw from a lot of these players and from the depth that the United States represents at this point with a six nothing win over el salvador tonight and then a six two win over panama back in november adam is the united states at a point right now where they are able to beat the the lower part of the upper echelon of Concacaf, beating teams like el salvador and panama pretty handily is the u.s at a point where they can do that regularly well, you know, that is the question, isn't it? And I think that that is going to go a little bit outstanding because, you know, playing Panama in a friendly in Europe or playing El Salvador in a friendly in Florida, as we know, is not the same thing as playing Panama in Panama in a World Cup qualifying game or playing in El sure. Salvador or Honduras or a lot of these Central American and Caribbean nations where a lot of these teams the U.S. has struggled with much more away from home. They have fans that create an incredible atmosphere. Um, and a, a lot of times you you hear players, um, I think especially I'm thinking of players for the United States that might be dual nationals and haven't come up really paying attention as much to CONCACAF um, people that are a lot of the more European dual nationals that qualifying in CONCACAF is something of an eye-opening experience for a lot of them because you do see you see this gamesmanship from a lot of countries you see countries uh, scheduling games at you know whatever three o'clock in the afternoon in the middle of august when the humidity is going to be crazy and temperatures are going to be in the 90s and and then you see the united states give it right back to a lot of people by scheduling games in colorado and columbus in this in the early spring uh when Temperatures are more or less going to be frigid and possibly snowing. So can the United States beat kind of these teams that they are, quote unquote, supposed to beat, um, just like they were supposed to beat them in the 2018 World Cup, World Cup qualifying campaign? I don't know if we can answer that question succinctly right now, because even though these results are super impressive, the, these are really, really good results. You just have to go back to the very last World Cup qualifying to find the U.S. pulling out that. What was it? The was it six nothing at home against uh, Honduras in the last World Cup qualifying campaign, and then going to Honduras only managed to draw, and at that only managed to squeak out a draw at the last second thanks to a Bobby Wood goal, I believe. So yes, positive positive signs from a lot of these young players, and good on them for for posting these really, really big wins against CONCACAF opposition. But I'm not ready to crown them as, okay, we only have to worry about Mexico and maybe Canada sometimes now in CONCACAF. I don't think that we can say that at this point. No, and that's a, that's a very fair point. I guess we'll find out more and we'll be able to revisit that question in September or October of, of this next year in 2021. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. We've set the scene. We talked about the context. We've we provided the more measured, even-keeled stuff. Now we're going to continue to do that but in a way that looks at the actual game. Yes, El Salvador was very poor. They couldn't put pressure on the ball. They couldn't keep their lines compact in any way, shape, or form. There were issues for El Salvador. But if we look at the United States in this match, I want to talk about what we learned from the U.S. as a whole. I've got a few observations. Adam, I'm sure you do as well. Who should go first with kind of our first main takeaway from this game? Uh, Joe, why don't you go first? I have a couple of things I noticed, but I'm curious to hear what you saw. Okay, so we come into this camp coming off of the November camp, right? That's a very logical thing. December comes after November. I'm not breaking any news on that one. But we see in this game some points of emphasis that we first started hearing a lot more about. We'd heard about them before, but a lot more about after the Wales game in November. So in that game, if if listeners, you guys remember, it was Sebastian Legette playing as the number nine, and it was Gio Reyna and Conrad De La Fuente playing as the two tucked-in wingers in the front line. With all those guys, the U.S. really lacked any sort of line-breaking movements from their attacking players. It was pretty stagnant as the U.S. moved forward in possession. Fast forward to tonight, fast forward to this El Salvador game, and we saw some things that Berhalter talked about after that November game put into practice. We saw the U.S. making line-breaking runs, direct runs, with their wingers in behind the, the back line for the opposition, and we saw the U.S. attacking the Manchester City zone which is those little corridors right on the outside of the box, the outer channels of the box. And I want to look at a couple of the goals here, Adam, if you'll indulge me. The first goal for the U.S. comes in the 17th minute. It's Paul Areola who scores coming off of that ACL tear. Good on you, Paul Areola. Looking at this goal more generally, though, it's the U.S. in possession. Sam Vines, young left back for the Colorado Rapids, has the ball at his left back spot. And he plays Chris Mueller, who's a left winger in this game, behind the back line. That's a huge key for Berhalter. He plays him behind the back line. It's a well-weighted ball that gets into Mueller, who then shows composure in the box, cuts it back to Paul Ariola, who finishes. We get the winger in behind the back line. Goal number two, Chris Mueller in the 20th minute. The U.S. score again. I'm not going to go through the whole lead up to this one. But again, it's the U.S. attacking spaces behind the back line. But this time, it's Leggett, the left-sided central midfielder, making a direct run into the Manchester City zone to fire off a low cross into the box that Chris Mueller eventually scores from. I love that we saw the U.S. continuing to build on principles that Berhalter has begun to emphasize over the last little bit. Yeah, and I think that it is interesting to think about how the U.S. looked tonight in the grand context of what Berhalter has sought to do tactically with the United States. And thinking about those first couple of games of Berhalter in charge, which were which was a January camp, um, when we first saw Berhalter kind of trying to do some different tactical things with the United States. And you saw that much talked about right back role where the right back, which was the first couple games was being taken pretty handily by Nick Lima. I believe Um, you saw Lima be that almost third or fourth central midfielder in possession where he was stepping up into the midfield and you kind of had this a little you were trying to create some some imbalances trying to create some overloads on the one side and and be able to find these little half spaces with the right back in possession to create numerical advantages for you and it resulted in this this interesting kind of more or less one-sided attack and then you kind of had to have a more dynamic left winger who was the person that was going to try to like run in behind and, and possibly finish things off at the far post as opposed to tonight where when I watched the U.S. in attacking possession and kind of 
uh, going at what I what I called El Salvador's shrinking block. I think it started off <laughs> as a mid as a like a mid block and then kind of became a low block as the first half wore on and they really were trying to not get embarrassed too badly. You saw these very, very defined triangles playing themselves out where you had Legette that was kind of playing on the one side and playing this triangle with Sam Vines and with Chris Mueller. You had Aronson on the other side doing the same with Paul Ariola and Julian Arajo that was coming in on the right hand side. And you saw it. I mean, there were there were times when they were indeed attacking those man city spaces, as you, as you described them, um, and having the the outside backs overlap and provide that width. Uh, and then there were other times even when you saw the the wingers, uh, Ariola and Mueller kind of coming back and playing in Aronson and Legette to kind of attack those spaces themselves and kind of providing an interesting little wrinkle on that interchange. So that was interesting to see kind of the evolution of, of the Burhalter tactics. But I do agree that there was definitely a focus at getting into the corners of the box. And I think that you also saw that a little bit, even on the, in the Panama game, I, I'm thinking of the, the, uh, the Nico Joachini goal uh, where you saw Tyler Adams slot the ball to a, a big diagonal run from Weston McKenney who got to the ball right at the end line, kind of right at the the end line and corner of the the box. And he floated the ball across where Matt Miazga then headed it back across the face of goal for Joe Akini to, to finish off. I think that there is definitely a big emphasis that Burhalter is putting on those types of runs and the dominance in that, in those, in those spaces. And um, so, yeah, it, it was interesting to see those, those kind of play out. And credit to Greg Berhalter for continuing to emphasize those tactics, that direct offensive movement that can get in behind opposing defenses. I think I read a a story from Brian Strauss from Sports Illustrated that had quotes with U.S. players talking about how Berhalter and the rest of the coaching staff had this group of players, this December group of players, watch film from the November games, which seems obvious, right? But you have those guys sitting in the film room together or virtually. I don't know how the COVID protocols are working at the moment. You have them watching the game and analyzing it and breaking it down. What a great tool for Berhalter to be able to use to continue to emphasize some of these game-changing offensive tactics. I mean, it's game-changing in that multiple goals result from those things in this game. Adam, what was one of your takeaways from this game? Watching the game, one of my main takeaways as you saw the U.S. moving forward into attack, one of my main takeaways was kind of how equal you saw how equal you saw Sebastian Legette and Brendan Aronson kind of pushing up into the attack and how those two were both very, very aggressive in their positioning and and getting forward. And I think that that's a big, interesting key, especially when you look at the November camp and you saw Yunus Musa and Weston McKinney playing in those, in those places. And you also see obviously Weston McKinney in just this last week, playing these type of roles for Juventus and seeing success as uh, that type of midfielder that's getting getting forward somewhat, not necessarily the getting forward as much as Aronson and Legette did tonight. But I did find it interesting that those those two attacking midfielders in front of the the deep lying midfielder were pushing much further forward into the attack than I can remember a lot of people for the U.S. doing in recent memory, with the possible exception of Yunus Musa. They pushed up a lot. And that actually ties in really well with the point I think I was making before. The central midfielders, a lot of the time, were the guys attacking those zones on the outer channels of the box. It was Legette. It was Aronson. Both of those guys were making those direct runs. That made the U.S. attack function at a high level in this game, even against a poor defense, even against a shrinking block. Those guys now, the two number eights, the advanced attacking midfielders in this three-man midfield that Berhalter has settled on, those guys are not only important defensively in the 4-3-3 high press that the U.S. use a lot of the time, less so in this game because they just didn't need to. But those players are now, the athleticism of those players is now emphasized on the ball and off the ball. In the press, when they have to cover ground and get side to side, and now offensively as well, when they're responsible for being the ones who break in behind the back line themselves and get into those dangerous attacking spaces. And I also think that it's very encouraging that those type of runs, that type of aggression, and that type of figuring out when your midfield partner is going forward, figuring out how to cover for them, that sort of thing, 
is demonstrably repeatable and that the U.S. has been shown to, over these last couple of months, be doing that with different players, with different personnel, and over the course of several games. And that's really, really important in the international game because in the international game, obviously, you're not coaching people as much as you are in your club ball. Your club ball, obviously, is where a lot more advanced tactics take place and you see a lot more innovations happen. Whereas with international ball, a lot of the time you have to be able to impart a lot of information on people in a relatively short amount of time before everybody breaks apart and then comes back together again. It's a lot it's a lot more difficult of a task and a, a bigger ask of players to figure things out tactically every single time they come in. So I think that's a super positive sign that over many different people over the course of a couple of months in two completely different groups that you see those things repeated and consistent and it clearly shows that the info was passed, but not only was the info passed, it was implemented successfully in game. So I think that's a really, really positive kind of note for Burhalter's coaching staff and the pool in general. My other main takeaway, kind of my final main tactical takeaway from this game was about the number six position. Adam, in this game, we get Jackson Yule starting as that deep line midfielder in contrast to Tyler Adams, who started both of those November friendlies they're very different players. Adams is more of a, I'm going to run until I can't run anymore and I'm going to close the ball down and you're going to be afraid of me kind of midfielder. And Jackson Yule is more of a, if you give me time and space, I'm going to play that Berhalter diagonal from the middle of the field out to one of the wings and it's going to look beautiful. They're very different types of defensive midfielders, but we've seen with the two of them playing that spot over the last month and change, we've seen some of how Berhalter wants to use that player. So back in January, if we want to go all the way back to the beginning of 2020, it was Jackson Yule who played that six spot in a domestic-based roster. Yule is the guy at this point among the, the MLS-based players. Yule played in that game as a number six, but he dropped between the center backs almost every time the U.S. was in possession. Fast-forwarding back to November. So we're still in the past, but now we're in November. Tyler Adams in that role against Wales didn't drop back. He stayed in front of the center backs and broke up plays and played simple passes. Then against Panama, we saw a bit of a mix of the two things. Sometimes Adams dropped deep between the center backs and other times he stayed in front of them. And I think in this game, we got a little bit of a better understanding of how Berhalter is using that spot because Jackson Yule tonight didn't really drop between the center backs either. So then the question is why? What's the difference between how Berhalter is using this role on a game by game basis? And I think for me, it has to do with how the defensive team is playing. El Salvador in this game originally started with one striker at the top of their defensive shape. So then if you're the U.S., you don't need to drop your number six in there. You already have two center backs back there to create a 2v1 advantage against that opposing striker. Later on in the game, El Salvador added another guy up top, but they still really weren't pressuring the U.S. center backs. And so Yule still didn't drop between those guys. I think there was one moment late, late in the second half where he kind of dropped, where he kind of moved in between those guys, but still not really. And so none of this really matters in the context of this game. But in general, I think it's great that we're getting more insight into Berhalter's positional roles and what he wants his guys to do in any specific, any given game, even if it's Ewell playing that spot or if it's Adams playing that spot. I will say, uh, watching the game, I, I think that it was absolute curtains for any hopes of El Salvador pressing after the first five to ten minutes when it just became abundantly clear that Julia, Julian Araujo had absolutely everybody on his side of the field for pace. Um, and it really, really messed with the El Salvadoran defense. Uh, it really, they uh, specifically on that, that on the U.S. right side, their left side over the first, the course of the first 10 to 15 minutes, Jimenez was, was just really being abused by the United States. And then as the first half wore on, you saw much the same occur on the left hand side, where it was also clear that Chris Mueller and Sam Vines had their men for pace as well. Um, and so when you are afraid to get beaten like that on the outside, it becomes more difficult for people to get out of the back and press because they're not sure if the cover behind them is what it needs to be in case the press doesn't work. The U.S. plays through it, all that stuff. And you saw El Salvador switch to a, a back five. Um, I, I think I believe they started with a back four and they switched to a back five after a couple goals were scored and it became clear that the United States was a little bit unplayable for for the Salvadorans tonight. So 
it's a little bit hard to evaluate Jackson Ewell's positioning, in my opinion, because I do think that when you get in Jackson Ewell's face, it becomes a little bit more difficult for him to play his game, his usefulness as that person that can spray diagonal balls 40, 50 yards across the field like he was doing tonight and finding people like Paul Ariola and Chris Mueller. Um, it becomes more difficult for him to play that game. And El Salvador just wasn't closing him down at all. But it is it is true that they are very different looks in terms of Jackson Yule versus Tyler Adams and how they were positioning. He obviously was not dropping between the center backs tonight. It totally changes the game when the defensive team is pressuring that number six. And maybe that's a cue as well for that defensive midfielder to drop between the center backs. I just thought it was worth pointing out that we see the U.S. possession shape change based on the game. Yes, but also based on the pressure of the defensive team and the alignment of the defensive team. Certainly something to keep our eyes on, at least something I'll be keeping my eyes on as the tactical nerd in these parts. I'll be watching for that down the line as the U.S. moves forward into 2021. Adam, do you have any other big picture things from this game before we get into player-by-player analysis? You know, just thinking about what I was saying, it's also good that the United States came into a game where the opponent really did start to turtle and kind of park the bus and try to just make the game difficult. And we're still was still finding so much attacking success because that is also something that you run into in CONCACAF a lot of the times. And the U.S. has, in the past, struggled to break down. You know, I'm not too old to remember the U.S. in, like, round two or three of World Cup qualifying, not even in in the hexagonal, but qualification for the hex, where you see... Hercules Gomez wonder free kicks needing to save the U S against Jamaica. You see Alan Gordon and Eddie Johnson having to save the U S against Antigua and Barbuda. Like these things happen. And the U S men's national team has struggled with teams playing a lower block in the past. So it's good to see that a team kind of came in and started really trying to just reinforce their defensive shape. And the U S still had a lot of joy against them. I'm with you. I'm with you, Adam. It's good to see the U S scoring goals, even against a lower defensive block. Adam Snavely and I will be back with our U.S. Men's National Team talk in just a minute. But first, I wanted to let you know that today's show is sponsored by Manscaped. Right now, Manscaped has a ton of top quality products ready to improve your gentlemanly hygiene. First of all, you've got the Lawnmower 3.0 trimmer. It's new, it's waterproof, and it's got advanced skin-safe technology to reduce nicks and cuts, and even has a light to help you with your close shave in your nether regions. Then you've got the Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer. That'll help you whack those nasty weeds in your ear or in your nose. It's pesky, it's there, but it won't be anymore after you use the Weed Whacker. If you want to smell good everywhere, Manscaped even has a refined cologne by Manscaped. It's a clean and fresh scent designed for the refined gentleman. On top of all of those things, they've even got a shed travel bag to carry your goods and the Manscaped anti-chafing boxer briefs to hold the entire package together. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code TSS20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code TSS20. Thank you to Manscaped for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Moving on to the players. We've got a lot of guys that played in this game. 17 guys came on the field at some point over the course of these 90-plus-ish minutes. We're going to mainly focus on the starting group. We might talk about a sub or two if we, if we get to it at the end of this episode. Let's start in goal. Adam, you, you ripped me about it a little bit at the beginning of the show, but it was Bill Hamid who started for the United States. He had very little to do. I don't have a lot to say about Bill Hamid. And honestly, I don't think he's really a factor in the larger U.S. goalkeeper pool. Yeah, uh, Bill Hamid didn't have much to do tonight. And he 
uh, honestly, it might have benefited him more if he had more to do tonight, <laughs> if he had to face yeah. some more shots um, and if he was was busier. And I think that the knock against Bill Hamid uh, for for I mean, more or less his entire career, Bill Hamid has game breaking shot stopping ability. He has shown that with DC United throughout the course of his career. He has kept several really kind of putrid DC United teams competitive just based on being the stone wall in the back and producing some ridiculous saves. He also has consistency problems. He just will let in goals that are just head scratchers. And he's had that throughout his whole career. That's been the dichotomy of Bill Hamid. He hasn't shown really for me that he has corrected those or that that has changed. So Bill Hamid will probably be a depth option for the United States in a gold cup or world cup qualifying. And that's fine. I think that at this point, that's, that's perfectly okay. We can all be okay with that. I'm okay with that, Adam. Moving over to right back. It was Julian Araujo, the youngster. He's still U20 eligible. He's still Olympic eligible. I thought he was good in this game leading up to the 70th ish minute. Uh, when he started to give the ball away and he struggled a little bit defensively before coming out for Kyle Duncan late in the second half. But if we set that aside, I thought the initial signs from Julian Araujo, both with his 1v1 defending and with his passing and quick touches, he gets an assist on Chris Mueller's second goal, I believe it was, later on in the first half. Overall, I think a, a promising performance from Julian Araujo at right back. Yeah, he did get the assist on the play where the Salvadorans essentially let him just wait for his attackers to to get back on side and i actually counted out they they just kind of waited as he held the ball not moving at all for 3 seconds and then he crossed it and chris mueller had a diving header finish that was quite nice but Araujo did a really, really nice job. And like I said before, I think that he was very instrumental in pinning El Salvador back and making them very tentative to push forward into the attack to try to press the United States because he was clearly the fastest man on that side of the pitch. On the occasions that he was called to defend, he also held up remarkably well. He was putting in challenges. He was making sure his his men weren't getting free. I can remember one specific uh, moment where... There was a rare El Salvador attack in the first half. His man managed to cut inside of him, and he very, very quickly just managed to kind of poke it away with his left foot. And his man crumpled a little bit and tried to claim a foul, but it looked like a pretty clean tackle to me. So, yeah, you had a very strong performance from Julian Araujo up to that head scratcher of a pass uh, in the second half, which was... Unfortunate. It was a, a blemish on an otherwise very, very good game. I think that Araujo came into this camp as an option for the Olympic team. And this game really solidified that as a, this is a really good option for the Olympic team. And even in stretches possibly look like this could be somebody who we call on for depth for the full national team in the next year, given how many games that we have. Uh, the one knock against him isn't even really against him at all. It's that right back happens to be a position of particular strength for the United States right now between Serginho Dustin and Reggie Cannon and even more people coming through the pipe. There's obviously rumors of people like Brian Reynolds being wanted by Juventus and, and that sort of thing. So there are a lot of right backs right now for the United States, and that's going to hurt his stock a little bit. But I thought it was a great game from Araujo. Yeah, I could see Julian Araujo and Brian Reynolds with Jason Kreiss' Olympic qualifying team in 2021, and then maybe even Araujo getting some looks with the senior team at some point next summer leading into World Cup qualifying. Flipping over to the other side of the back line, Sam Vines started at left back. What did you see from him in this game? I, I thought he showed well as well. Yeah, I, I the moment for Sam Vines for me is picking out uh, Chris Mueller's run with that curling ball with his left foot. Uh, as Mueller got down the sideline and then got into that that Man City space on the side of the box before dinking across that was, I think, originally intended for Io Akinola. It took a little deflection. Paul Ariel comes in, scores the first goal of the game. And that was a really, really nice play from Sam Vines and a great ball to release Chris Mueller from the outset. Uh, and I think that that's the type of play that Greg Berhalter really, really loves seeing. Uh, the be the vision and the ability kind of combined to do those two things. Sam Vines is in a fundamentally different position than Julian Araujo because 
unlike Araujo, I don't think left back still is a particular sort uh, place of strength for the United States men's national team. Obviously, you had Anthony Robinson playing there over the course of uh, the game against Wales in November, and he is playing with Fulham in the Premier League. I still have questions about Anthony Robinson every time I see him play, and I can't tell if it's lack of consistency or if when he's playing with Fulham, it's just because Fulham isn't very good and he's being asked to do a ton. Um, but I, I think that Anthony Robinson hasn't locked down that left back position very much. And Sam Vines is with performances like these, obviously against maybe not as good competition. Sure. But I think that Sam Vines is asking the correct questions of Burhalter to really start kind of raising some eyebrows and we're, we're figuring out, you know, who is going to be the people that are more or less the consistent call-ups for the senior national team. I think Sam Vines can work his way into that group. Sam Vines brings things to the field that Anthony Robinson just doesn't right now. Sam Vines brings defending that Robinson doesn't 1v1 defending specifically. He also brings passing. You talked about that pass that got Chris Mueller in behind the back line. Sam Vines has some precise ability on the ball to bend the ball in for the striker or, or to play his winger behind the back line. He can even move inside and play as an auxiliary central midfielder at times. Robinson is more of a north-south. I'm going to dribble by you. I'm going to beat you with pace. And I'm going to put the ball in the box for a cross. Sam Vines is just a different player. And I think I, I like him a little bit more right now than Anthony Robinson. But it doesn't really matter what I think. I think Vines will probably be an Olympic guy for Jason Kreiss and an option at left back for one of the tournaments, Nations League Gold Cup, leading into World Cup qualifying in, in the summer of 2021. I really feel like Sam Vines could vie for a starting left back spot with the full national team right now. That, that, that might be a bold prediction for me, but I think that you see in the next six to eight months, you see Sam Vines and Anthony Robinson in the same camp and in the same international fixture day. And I think that Sam Vines has the ability and kind of the profile that Burhalter is looking for to win that left back spot. Looking in the middle of this back line against El Salvador, it was Aaron Long as the right-sided center back and Mark McKenzie as the left-sided center back. The U.S. right now has some depth at center back. They've got John Brooks playing for Wolfsburg in the Bundesliga. They've got Tim Ream, who's not playing a lot for Fulham at the moment, but who is a solid guy distributing from the left side of the back line. They've also got Chris Richards coming up for Bayern Munich and Matt Miazga, who played a little bit back in November. I don't really know where Aaron Long and Mark McKenzie fit in within that depth chart. I don't think they showed anything in this game to you know put them lower than they were coming into it. They also didn't jump up higher. They were fine. They did what they needed to do. I think those guys, along with pretty much every other center back I just mentioned, is somewhere between what one and six for Berhalter and Jason Kreis on the, the center back depth chart right now. Sure. And it was hard for them to really distinguish themselves because they had so little to do defensively and because El Salvador was putting so little pressure on Jackson Ewell. When you have people getting pressure onto your defensive midfielder, that's when you have... That's that's when your center backs are more called upon to start getting involved in the possession game, in breaking down defenses, in the John Brooks role of being able to pass the ball wherever the heck you want to with that left foot of his, which I know that you are a big fan of. Um, and you didn't really see McKenzie and Aaron Long get the chance to do that. As it stands... Aaron Long is Aaron Long. He's going to be a guy that Berhalter is going to call on as just a, a solid depth guy slash possible starter at times. Um, I, I think the same can be said of Walker Zimmerman, who came into this game later. Um, Mark McKenzie is the bigger question mark just because Mark McKenzie is still so young and Mark McKenzie seems to imminently be moving to Europe and we'll see what that does for his development because he is still in the developmental stage as opposed to guys like Aaron Long and Walker Zimmerman who Aaron Long definitely I think out of the developmental stage. I don't think that either of these guys necessarily distinguish themselves. I don't think that's also their fault. The game just didn't require that of them so it's hard to see how their stock could have risen or fallen just based on this game so so far just along the back line Aaron Long Mark McKenzie and and Sam Vines all seem like guys that we could envision playing in big games for the U.S. in 2021 we see that same thing in central midfield we've got Jackson Ewell Brendan Aronson and Sebastian Legette starting with Ewell we talked about him a lot already he seems like a guy to me who brings something different than Tyler Adams. We, we went over that. 
But I think that's a good thing. I think you want a complementary player or, or just a different player than the Tyler Adams destroyer, simple pass type of midfielder. Jackson Ewell, for me, in the American player pool, the domestic player pool, I should say, is the number six. He is the guy who has passed Michael Bradley. He certainly passed Will Trapp. And in my estimation, he's passed Johnny Cardoso, who, who just played a little bit for the U.S. back in November, coming over from Brazil. Jackson Ewell is, for me, in the main U.S. roster whenever the U.S. has a big qualifying game. I am... With you on Will Trapp, and I am with you on Michael Bradley, and I think that Jackson Ewell has clearly passed those two players, and that Berhalter will be calling Ewell ahead of those guys. I think the jury is still out on uh, Johnny Soccer, as I like to call him, Johnny (laughs) Cardoso. I liked what I saw from him in the limited minutes that I got. Obviously, he's still pretty young, but he's playing at a high level in Brazil and getting some pretty important minutes there. And and I think that he represents possibly the most physical presence of any of our current, any of our current defensive midfield options, or at least more physical, I think than Jackson Yule and even more physical than Tyler Adams. Um, I think the Johnny Cardoso is a great player to have for a lot of these CONCACAF games when you need people who are down for the scrap, people who are not afraid of the fight and what occurs when you get a little bit more physical. Uh, and, and I think that that's valuable, but I do think that Jackson Yule is an established Burr halter at the very least depth pick probably behind Tyler Adams at this point. And I'll let Jackson Yule and Johnny Cardoso and their different profiles duke it out for them. But I think that you'll see him on plenty of senior team rosters next year. If I don't get a t-shirt, if I don't see someone making a t-shirt that says Johnny soccer and then the subtitle down for the scrap by, I don't know, the end of January, I'm going to be really, really disappointed. That is just beautiful. And I want to wear it. Every basically every day. And if any Total Soccer Show uh, sponsors want to ever, you know, make that, uh, you know, just just <laughs> get in contact with me. Maybe we can work something out. I like it. Adam, the designer and the creator of this shirt. I, I'm, I'm definitely buying one, maybe six. Looking at the number eight spots, Brendan Aronson, Legette, as I already mentioned, I think both of these guys are, like I said with Yule, in very real contention to get depth minutes, but minutes off the bench for the first choice U.S. team in September 2021 World Cup qualifying. Aronson scores a goal. He scores the sixth goal in this game in the 50th minute. The U.S. worked the ball down their left side. Legette, his central midfield partner, makes a run into the Manchester City zone, cuts it back into the box for Aronson, who has about eight years to shoot. The shot is deflected and it goes into the back of the net. Aronson and Legette, for me, have showed enough throughout the domestic regular season in Major League Soccer and in this game, to be options for Greg Berhalter in the biggest games that the U.S. will play going forward. Yeah, uh, Legette showed what Legette has shown over the course of the last couple of years for Berhalter, that he has a consistent ability to be a little bit above average in terms of your average MLS central midfielder. He is tricky on the ball, and especially on that assist to Brendan Aronson, that little body fake that he sold to get free and get to kind of to the end line and pull defenders away from him was was very, very nice. He did get a little bit of help on his goal via deflection. I think he was going for the chip from the outset and it hit the defender's leg and it just made the chip somehow better. But I, I think that you'll see Sebastian, plenty of Sebastian Legette. On the Brendan Aronson front, one of, one of my favorite things that I saw from him was how quickly he was going from defending and harrying and pressing to attack. And you saw that on a couple of different goals in the first half. The big one, the one where you saw uh, Legette actually score, you saw Brendan Aronson recognize that run that Legette was making early and feed him the ball in a spot where he was breaking free of the entire defense from midfield and creating a 1v1 situation for himself with the keeper coming out, which was a really, really great ball and a really heads-up play from Aronson. And then uh, the other time, the other one that I was thinking of was the actually the Iowa goal, where you saw Paul Ariola get stuck in in transition defense and 
turn that opportunity quickly into an attack. And immediately, Brendan Aronson was away. He was immediately streaking down the field. He was, Ariola found him with the ball. He found the wide open Chris Mueller. Chris Mueller unselfishly lays the ball off. I loved what I saw from Brendan Aronson in this game in terms of recognizing when defense was turning into attack and getting after those moments. And I especially like that because I think that going to Salzburg under Jesse Marsh, that's what Jesse Marsh likes to do. That's the type of thing that he drills into his players, that moment of transition from defense to attack and being able to attack that wholeheartedly and with conviction and numbers. And I said on a total soccer show a little bit ago that I thought that the best case profile for Brendan Aronson moving to Salzburg, looking at current and former Salzburg players was Minamino. And I said at that time, I think that Minamino is a little bit more goal hungry and really gets into those spots so, so quickly. And I know that Brendan Aronson has the work rate to do that. I just don't know if he has the cognizance and the recognition and the positioning on the field to do that right now. So it's a question of, can that be coached into him? And I saw promising signs for that development tonight. Brendan Aronson brings so much. Like I said with with Sam Vines, he brings so much that a lot of other players don't have right now for the U.S., Aronson almost brings something, and I'm going to say a name, and I don't want people to overreact. He almost brings some Christian Pulisic-ness to this team. In that, when Aronson started in this game, it was as the right-sided central midfielder in the 4-3-3. Aronson played in that spot a lot, but he also rotated wide and, and moved Paul Areola inside as a result of his movement a lot. And who's the guy that in 2019 we saw moving Paul Areola around on the field? It was Christian Pulisic. It was him playing as a left-sided central midfielder and Areola constantly rotating back and forth on that left side. Aronson, because he's comfortable in so many different spots on the field, can do that on the right side. He can move, stay central, or he can move wide, or he can move to the left side, stay central or wide, cut in on his right foot. He can play in so many different spots in the attack. And for that reason, I think he brings a ton of value to this team, regardless of whether he's playing in the Olympics for Jason Kreis or in Olympic qualifying, I should say or in one of the, the tournaments that the U.S. has going on in 2021. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Okay, let's move on to the forward line. We've said his name a few times already. It was Paul Areola starting at right wing. He gets his goal after coming off of, of ACL rehab that he's been working through in 2020. It was Io Akinola who gets a goal as the number nine, and then it was Chris Mueller on the left side of the attack who grabs two goals in his first cap for the United States. Adam, where do you want to start with this group of three players? I'm going to start with my pick for man of the match and the person that I think did the absolute most for his case with the United States men's national team and being included in the full senior national team going forward. And that's Chris Mueller of Orlando City. He had and I'm going to name drop somebody and it's a little bit of an older somebody. And I apologize if this offends anybody. But Chris Mueller in this game gave me some Clint Mathis vibes a little bit. That ability to go at defenders and just, you know, from, from just the, the opening second that it's over for the other team. He, Clint Mathis had this ability where he would go out and, and he would just go out some games and be utterly unplayable. You, you couldn't, you couldn't defend him. He just, he just had this this complete ruthlessness about him that would turn games by itself. And I think that Chris Mueller showed that in this game in spades. He showed intelligence. Yes, he showed speed and quickness and guile a lot of the time, but just his ability to get into the box, his ability in the final third to hop over tackles, to create himself space, to finish off plays. His Both his goals actually were fantastic finishes, uh, really, really picking spots out and being able to score multiple ways. He is the type of player that the U.S. desperately needs for games like World Cup qualifying. You need that player that is just going to be able to go out and get nothing but results from you all the time, results for you, I should say, all the time. And I really, really loved what I saw from Chris Mueller during this game. I think coming into this game against El Salvador, Chris Mueller was on the fringes at the very bottom of the winger options in the player pool. We hadn't seen him with the U.S. before. Yes, he came off of a really good season with Orlando City in MLS, but we didn't really know what he was going to look like with the national team. 
Now, after scoring a couple of goals, playing direct, looking like a guy, exactly like you said, Adam, like a guy who can play and contribute in some really difficult away games in World Cup qualifying, I think that is his role going forward. I don't want to overstep here. I don't want to over-exaggerate. It's one game, and we're going to see more of him, I assume, next year. And so I don't want to want to go too far here. But from everything I've seen with him with Orlando and now in his first cap, it does seem like he is a depth option, not with Jason Christ in the Olympic qualifying squad because he's not Olympic eligible right now. He'd have to be an overage player. But Chris Mueller, in the way he played tonight, seems like a guy you want on a roster in a difficult game. Yeah, if if I am the United States and... I am down a goal or tied, say, away in Mexico, or I'm facing a Costa Rica side in Costa Rica on short rest or something like that. Chris Mueller is a guy that I want to see on the field because he was just so good at making things happen, whether that was with his movement, creating matchup problems for the defense, whether that was getting on the end of plays and finishing, whether that was creating the plays himself. He was doing so much in attack tonight, and I really think that so much of the good things that the United States were doing were coming through him, which isn't to say that nobody else was doing good things, because I also think that on the other side, Paul Ariola was doing plenty of good things, and I think that his role tonight was kind of uniquely suited to the skill set that he brings to the table. Paul Areola did Paul Areola things. He he moved around defensively, he was energetic, and he played direct offensively. He dribbled forward quickly and got to the end line at times. He got into the box when the U.S. needed him there. Paul Areola, even though he's coming back from an injury, looks like the Paul Areola that we've seen before. And for me, that, that really does mean he is a depth option. He's not a starting guy for the U.S. at any real competitive game, but he's a guy you probably want off the bench or or maybe the... Honestly, maybe the winger pool has moved past that at this point. But he is a guy who has proven that he can still contribute in games, even if it's against a weaker team. Yeah, and and I forgive anybody for not being excited about Paul Areola. Like that's that's fine. I I, I think that we all know who Paul Areola is at this point in time, um, and what he brings to the table. And what he brings to the table is still valuable. It, it's not to say that I think that he should be starting or that he's better than you know. X player in the pool. I just think that when you look at his game and what he brings uh, with both his ability to run around and make an absolute nuisance of himself, because you know, once Paul Hill is getting into the game, that that kid is never going to stop running. He's just going to run his head off and that's going to be his game. And he's also good at getting in the half spaces. He was shifted around a lot as a young player, both for club and for the youth national teams. He played as a winger. He played as a central midfielder. He played as a forward. He played a bunch of different positions. And I think that the role tonight of him kind of vacillating between these things where at some points you saw him get to the end line. At some points you saw him kind of operate as almost a second striker, curling his runs in behind it really, really kind of emphasized the fact that Paul Ariolo has been a utility man for almost his entire career and the benefit of having that type of person. Yeah, I don't know where Ariolo will go roster-wise next year, but he will be on a roster, assuming he's healthy. The last guy in the starting group, Ayo Akinola, he grabs a goal in the 27th minute, sliding in in the box to get that, that tapped-in finish. With the U.S., that was their fifth goal of the game, even just in the 27th minute. Akinola, I thought, was good. Everybody looked good in this game. But more important to me than the fact that he generally looked good and comfortable in this match was the different things that he was doing when the U.S. didn't give him the ball. Ayo Akinola with Toronto FC typically makes a lot of slipped-in runs in behind the back line. He did that in this game, but he also showed versatility. He showed his willingness to drop into midfield help the U.S. play out a little bit, or at least draw a defender with him and create opportunities for other players to move into that space. I wasn't expecting that, to be honest, out of Ayo Akinola. He hasn't shown that a lot in the past, and I thought that was a pleasantly surprising development to see that from a number nine in this game, even if it's not the Josie Altidore guy you expect to drop into midfield. Yeah, the game wasn't really being played through Ayo Akinola that much. And if you go back to, say, the 2019 uh, Gold Cup, where you saw the United States play, and especially in those later rounds, a lot of the time when the U.S. was getting into the attack, they were trying to play the ball through Josie Altidore. And it made sense because Josie Altidore and Christian Pulisic were clearly the two best attacking players in that side. They were the ones that were they were the ones that had the ideas. 
they got the ball and things happened when they were getting on the ball. Iowa Canola didn't really get that chance that much during this game. A lot of things were being created, like we said before, by Chris Mueller and Paul Ariola switching their ideas up, whether they were kind of going towards the end line like a winger, whether they were curling their runs and trying to get in behind as kind of second forwards or even dropping into the midfield and allowing Brendan Aronson or Sebastian Legette going forward. A lot of the movement and the interchange was occurring on the wings and on the corners of the box. But Iowa was doing his thing, was, as you said, moving off the ball and creating opportunity and space for those other people. And I was happy to see him get the goal for and kind of get rewarded for a lot of that hard work that he was doing. I don't think we saw the striker depth chart reshuffled in any way as a result of this game. Iowa is on the depth chart somewhere between one and, well, somewhere between three and six, probably. Where he is in that ranking, I don't know. I don't think we learned enough about it to be able to say. But if he decides to play for the U.S., again, being eligible for a number of different countries, if he decides to play for the U.S., there is a spot for him somewhere in a busy year you know, going forward and even a busy next couple of years for the U.S. fixture-wise. Well, I think there will certainly be a spot for him given Josie Altador's injury history. And if we're still relying on Josie Altador going forward in in some sort of capacity. I think that Josie Altidore probably will play a part in this next World Cup qualifying cycle, but I think that you'll probably see him start to be cycled into more of an impact substitute um, and kind of sunsetted as a, a Miroslav Klosa for the United States men's national team as opposed to being the, the main guy going forward. But if you're figuring... Josie Altador is probably getting a spot. Jossie Zardes is probably getting a spot. Josh Sargent is getting a spot. So you have those three guys. And then, okay, does somebody come in and take one of those spots or manage to move above them in the depth chart? Or are we just waiting for a fourth guy? I think Io Akinola has a very, very good legitimate shot at being that fourth person that's in there, especially because he does have the flexibility to play both as a striker, where I think he's best, but also on the wings, where you saw him move out when Sebastian Soto was subbed in tonight. Um, and he's much more of a direct winger than I think the game that Chris Mueller and uh, Paul Ariola were playing. But he does have that flexibility, and given the injury status that frequently accompanies Josie Altador and some of the other forwards that are in the pool, it would be a really, really big benefit for the United States to have Io Akinola there and be able to call upon him. I think the question is, is that a good enough role for Io Akinola or does he look at Canada's setup and said, huh, it's, it's basically Jonathan David and me. Well, maybe I go there because I actually get to play But if I go there and I play, do we qualify for the World Cup? Obviously, we have a good young team, but it's really hard for us to get into the next World Cup. The United States feels like it has a better, more clear shot at it. There's a lot of pros and cons to weigh there. And I think that 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 decision and that uh, that that kind of the choice for Iowa Canola between Canada and the United States. I don't think Nigeria is as much of a, a factor at this point. I think it's probably between the U S and Canada because those two have clearly been in most contact with him. But I, I think that that story with Canada is not yet finished. I would not be surprised if he did choose the Canadians actually. Jonathan David and me is going to be the next blockbuster rom-com uh, in a couple of years at some point, at least in Canada. So just keep your eyes out for that, everybody, because it's going to be it's going to be huge. Adam, we've been through the entire starting lineup. There are also six subs that came on in this game. Marco Farfan, Sebastian Soto, Kellen Acosta, Georgie Mihailovic, Kyle Duncan and Walker Zimmerman. I don't think we saw enough of any of those guys to need to go into them in any level of detail but I'm happy to be overruled if you have anything that you want to get to on any one of those six players. I don't have any high level of detail, especially because when those players came on, the game effectively stalled out a bit after Brendan Aronson's sixth goal. I think that you saw the United States clearly take their foot off the gas a little bit. Uh, El Salvador, obviously grateful for the reprieve, but they didn't press their their luck too much with going forward. Um, so you, you did see some people. It was nice to see Kellen Acosta make his return to the national team after a long, long layoff for him. I don't know if he will play a part with the U.S. going forward. I think same can be said of people like Georgi Mihailovic, who I'm kind of like, yeah, that, that that's a person that's definitely a body that could be thrown in there. I obviously didn't see 
a ton from them in this game because there wasn't, there just wasn't an opportunity to see that much from them in this game. Elsewhere, I think Walker Zimmerman will probably be a depth option for the full national team at center back simply by virtue of the fact that there are so many people that play that right center back position and none of them are really establishing themselves as the go-to guy. So a lot of those people are just going to stay hanging around and Walker Zimmerman is going to be that person who also is in that mix and kind of vying for that starting spot with people like Aaron Long. Marco Farfan and Kyle Duncan, I think, are probably very fine uh, U23 options for the Olympic team. I I think that they're both good, young, attacking fullbacks in MLS, and I'm not sure how much more they can show outside of that, at least at this point. But yeah, I, I mean, there were, there were plenty of substitutes Again, the the game state didn't really lend itself to anybody showing anything big or really changing their stock. We've talked all sorts of United States men's national team things tonight. It seems like there's going to be a game in January of 2021 or, or at least a camp at some point. I'm not certain about that. I don't think anyone's completely certain about that right now because of the global pandemic and, and some things that MLS is trying to figure out with their scheduling and preseason stuff. But if that camp does happen, we will see more of this Greg Berhalter men's national team in 2021. Adam, until then, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today and talk tons and tons of men's national team stuff. Hey, thank you for having me on. As always, it's a pleasure. And if we can talk for more than an hour about a 6-0 win over El Salvador in a December friendly, I shudder to think about how long we can talk about literally any other game. (laughs) that is very true listeners thank you for bearing with us and we will be back again soon soon